My name is Clancy Immelslin, and what she has said is true, and I now must clear, cure an emotional leper. Heal. Heal. I've had some wonderful introductions tonight, but not around here. <clears throat> My name is Clancy Immelslin, I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October 31st, 1958, and my home group is the Pacific Group, which is not as wonderful as some of the groups in Texas and other places, but we, we are the largest and most successful group in the world, and we stagger on. There's a lot of, we just had our 50th anniversary. There's a lot of groups that are 50 years old. But there's not very many with the founders still sitting there whining. That's not right. That's not right. And that's my job. I, uh, I guess they have me here as a throwback to a different, the previous generation. Most of our speakers have been, I, get, I noticed, got sober in the 1980s. And uh, I got sober a little before that, but nothing much different has happened in AA. There have been a few changes. I think in the 19... Uh, 50s, there were no treatment centers. You couldn't go to treatment. You had to just brave it out if you could. And uh, over the years, there's been some conflict a little bit in AA. The current one is whether to get rid of the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure glad we said it here, I'll tell you. But there's a, there's a force that thinks that it irritates people, that it offends people. I don't know who it offends. My home group meets at a big synagogue in Los Angeles. And every once in a while, the, the rabbi will come in on a Wednesday night and sit in the back row. And I could just see him thinking, how can I get this many people here Friday night? <laughs> but when we say the Lord's Prayer, he jumps up and holds hands and says the Lord's Prayer. And I think, you're supposed to be offended by that. That's what they say. A couple of years ago, I was asked to come and speak in the World Service Office in New York for the staff. And at the end of the meeting, they closed it with a serenity prayer. I said, why the hell don't you say the Lord's Prayer? And I offended them. And I've never... But I, uh, I guess one of the reasons for being getting sober a long time ago is I may be, you know, there's not, no opportunity to do this in a matter of merit. But I must be one of the very few people in this room, if not the only one, who spent an hour talking to Bill Wilson. In 1963, I was sober about five years, and I'd been sent to New York on a project. And I got it done at night, and the next morning I had time to kill. I thought I'd go over and talk to Bill Wilson. And so I went over and talked to Bill, talked to Bill Wilson, and the girl said, Oh, he's booked up for three weeks. I can get you in in three weeks if you want to. I said, No, I won't be here. Never mind. I went to archives, and I was looking through some old papers and pictures, and all of a sudden, here comes Bill Wilson. He said, You the young man wanted to talk to me? I said, Yes, sir. He said, well, my 11 o'clock didn't show up. Come on in. And we sat and talked for an hour. And you know what he said? I don't remember. (laughs) 
I was more concerned about what he thought about me than what he was saying. <laughs> the only thing I remember, and it came this, this week too, I said to him, I said, uh, one question, Bill, before I go. Uh, last week in our book study, I read the chapter on working with others aloud, and it talks about all the identification you do and all the adjustments you make, but you never once talk about taking the people to meetings. Don't you people ever take anybody to meetings in New York? He said, young man, when I wrote that, there were no meetings. That just sent a chill down my back. Just stop thinking, having to work with a new guy and getting him just a little interested, then have to take him to an Oxford group meeting where they like a church service, and that wipes him out sometimes. But he, uh, he bore through it, of course. And I, I'm, I was had pleased to hear him talk in 1960 at the International Convention. I was pleased because I was there to hear Ebby give his only talk that he ever gave at a convention. That's the interesting little piece about Ebby. You might know about this. But you know, Ebby was Bill's original sponsor, kind of. And uh, he... He couldn't quite stay sober very much. And Bill was worried. In 1953, Ebby got drunk again. Was, there might be someone to help him. And someone said to Bill, there's a guy in Dallas named uh, Cersei Whalen. I don't know that. I, don't. <laughs> I want to talk about how much Bob has helped me, too. Um, I, I, let me interrupt something. I do have something to say. Bob, Bob helped me a lot with something he said many years ago. I was sober a while, coming into Minneapolis, trying to get a car, rent a car, to t take down to see my folks in Wisconsin. And Bob said, take my car. And I said, okay. And I took it, a nice big car, and what he did, what did you do when I was gone? Hitchhike, I guess. I don't know. Who cares? But, <laughs> That's the best thing he could have said to anybody at that moment. But anyway, Abby uh, went down to see Cersei, and Cersei kept him sober for seven years, the longest he ever stayed sober. And Bill was so thrilled that he had him come and speak at the International Convention in Long Beach. Long. And uh, it was interesting when Bill got up, he said, I'd like to introduce my sponsor, Abby. Very touching. And Abby talked. Then it turned out he went back to Texas and was very upset because Bill got more attention than he did. He said, I should have got more. I'm his sponsor. He should have got more attention. He didn't realize he didn't stay sober all that much. And so he got brooding about that and he eventually got drunk again. And Bill went down to Texas and picked him up and took him back to upper New York State and put him in a rest home where he died. But he died sober. He died sober because they didn't serve any drinks in that place. But it's, it's an amazing thing. I think about that sometimes because the one thing when you hear about Bill, he went to the door, or when Ebby, when Ebby was being arrested or drinking a lot up in Vermont, and Roland went up there, and they said, will you talk to Ebby? He's such a bad drunk. And Roland said, sure, I used to drink, and I'm sober now. So he brought him in, and he said to Ebby, Ebby, there's one thing you got to learn. you got to find a power greater than yourself. And Abby said, I don't want to hear that religious crap. 
That was the end of it. Next day he was in jail. Bill appeared for him in court, got permission to bring him back to New York. And ironically, when Bill was in the hospital, town hospital, and the Lois called up Abby and said, they say he's going to die perhaps. Would you go talk to him one more time? Abby said, sure. And he went up there and talked to Bill and he said, you know, Bill, you have to find a power greater than yourself. And Bill says, I don't want to hear that religious crap. And Abby went home and later that night, Bill had a spiritual experience. The reason I think about that is because in 1957, I was living and working in Dallas and somebody took me to see Circe, the magic worker. And he said to me, Clancy, there's one thing you gotta learn. There's a power greater than you are. And you know what I said? I said, I don't want to hear that religious crap when I went and got drunk. Because if the listener isn't listening, it doesn't make any difference what you say, it turns out. And I got to know Cersei very well years later and got to know him many ways, but he is a good man. Also at the 1960 convention, I heard Sister Ignatia tell that story of how she got Bill and Dr. Bob in to see Bob Dod Bill Dotson. And I went afterwards, I was quite touched. I'm touched by celebrity. And I shook her hand, as I recall, and kissed her on the cheek. And then I think I said, oh my gosh, is it all right to kiss a nun? <laughs> and I think she said, as long as you don't get in the habit. can't remember every detail from 1960, for God's sake. But uh, I'm kind of at a loss in a sense because I had kind of a plan to go through the speakers one by one and announce what they'd said and how important they were. And then thank you, Mark, for doing such a good job. And the previous speaker did all that for me. Uh, he, uh, you got a lot in in that hour and a half. No, I wasn't, I wasn't upset. You know me. <laughs> but we all have a lot in common here. I, uh, I think about uh, Carl. He and I probably are the only Lutherans in the house. They're, they're, they're hard to find. They don't mate much is the problem. <laughs> I don't recall. I just have to think. I was telling somebody that the other night. I don't recall ever being hugged as a child. I don't think I ever was hugged by my grandma or anybody. Norwegian Lutherans don't hug. They say, well, very good. <laughs> but you don't know you're not being hugged because you're not used to it. You know, you don't. But uh, I was raised in a very strong Norwegian Lutheran community in northern Wisconsin. And I was confirmed and catechized and very strict. But I didn't know any better. It's just that's what you do. And uh, I got straight A's in school. They shoved me ahead in school at Christmas time once and again another time. And they, remember my grandma said, you're going to be governor of Wisconsin someday. We're so proud. And then when I was about 12, my parents got divorced, which doesn't seem like much. Everybody gets divorced. But I had, at the age of 12, I had never heard of a divorce. And none in our church, none in our family. Somebody explained it to me, but I was bitter. I thought they're doing, hurting me. They're breaking up our family group. We don't get together anymore. Everybody, Christmas, everything. And I withdrew into kind of a sullen inaction. 
and stopped doing things and got to be a sarcastic smart aleck. By the time I was 15 years older, I was flunking out of school, and I had nobody, nobody cared for me that I knew of. A couple of kids I ran around with, they wound up in the penitentiary later. I'm sure I was going to go there, but, uh, but save me the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. And that was just such an impressive, shocking thing that I, it took my mind off everything else. I suddenly had a great patriotic drama. I wanted to go over there and kill Japs. And I uh, couldn't do much because I was only 14. But, but when I turned 15, just before I turned 15, it was at the summer vacation, I just got done my sophomore year of high school. I told my, told my mother, I want to go to, uh, up to Duluth to see my aunt. She says, okay, and she packed my little bag and gave me some bus fare. I got a guy to give me a ride to Minneapolis. And I knew that, she, from what I read, San Francisco was a hotbed of Marines at that time for some reason. I wanted to get to San Diego, or San, San, Francisco, San Francisco, and enlist the Marines. And I'd never hitchhiked, but I'd heard hitchhiking was a good way to go. I said to some guy, how do you hitchhike? He said, just stick out your thumb and smile. And I, I remember standing outside of Minneapolis, did it where the hell the highway went, you know. <laughs> but finally, a uh, car stopped. The guy said, where are you going, kid? I said, San Francisco. He said, okay, so am I. Hop in. Turned out he was in the Navy, going back to the ship. I don't know why he picked me up. He drove me all the way across the country. We stopped at night. There were no motels. He gave me a bed in a trailer court. Bought my meals, listened to me prattle. I told him I was going to go over there and kill Japs and make up for America. He said, I don't think you're going to get in the Marine Corps, kid, because you're only about, I was that tall and a face full of pimples and glasses. He said, you don't look quite old enough. He said, but uh, maybe get in the Merchant Marine. They're crying for anybody. All the good guys go in the Navy. They're very short on shipboard. I said, okay. He said, go to, I'm going to take you to the Coast Guard office. Go in there and tell me you want to be in the Merchant Marine. So we came to Market Street in San Francisco smelled the ocean for the first time. God, I still remember that. And the, oh, big buildings, excitement. I want to be in the Merchant Marine. I said, spell this out. And I put it down. I put down 16 like he told me to do. He said, well, you're only 16, kid. You have to have your parents' permission. So I took it around the block, got my parents' permission. <laughs> and that afternoon, without any training or knowledge or nothing, I was on a load of torpedo warheads going to the South Pacific. And uh, I was in a ship with a bunch of really bad guys. Uh, they weren't bad guys. They had been pirates any other era. You know, ha, 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 drinking and talk dirty. And I was in a room with some, they called it the cabin. It wasn't a cabin. Cabins in Wisconsin have got logs in them. And uh, but I remember the first day I was on that ship, the first night, I was lying in my bunk, and they were all talking about what they'd been doing in Los Angeles or San Francisco for the three days the ship had been there, and they'd been doing terrible, dirty things. I was shocked. I'm, I had broken three commandments by then, but I wasn't old enough to really get to the others yet. And I thought, oh my God, these all they ever talk about just. I suddenly realized, of course, they've all got black hair. Those are the Catholics I've been warned against. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't give the wrong impression, but I'd like to say that even at the age of 15 in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I'd had sex. 
But I'd been apprehensive and I'd been afraid and I'd been alone. And these guys were doing it with people. Oh, God, I couldn't believe it. But he eventually accepted me as kind of a dumb mascot. At the end of our watch, a watch on the ship is a four-hour period. If you got four to eight, it's four to eight morning, four to eight at night, and so on. And uh, these guys went for our watch, and they all had whiskey in their sea bags. They weren't supposed to have, but who's going to stop, you know? And uh, drink whiskey, ha, 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 drink whiskey. And I just lie in my bunk and think, oh, God, these are sinners. I hope God doesn't punish me. One day a guy came over just before we came into Pearl Harbor. I stuck a bottle in my face. He says, you think you're man enough for a little short kid? And I thought, I better stop this right now. I was going to tell him, you get that bottle out of my face. I don't happen to be a Catholic or whatever you are. I'm a Norwegian Lutheran. We don't drink whiskey. We don't even talk to people that drink whiskey as a rule. So I'll thank you never to put that in my face again. I was just going to say that. He says, why do you think you're man enough? I heard a voice say, God damn right. <laughs> so I had my first drink of whiskey out of the first bottle I was ever close to that burned my mouth and my throat and my stomach and my throat and my mouth and his shirt finally. <laughs> Get the bottle away from the little son of a bitch. <laughs> to this day, I don't know any emotion that's worse than public humiliation where somebody just points out you're nothing and there's nothing you can do about it. I thought later there was one thing I might have done. I'm glad I didn't think of it at the time, but if I'd have done it, they'd have thrown me overboard. It would have been cute, though. I could lean over you. Yeah. Take that. <laughs> but uh, the next day we went to Pearl, in Honolulu, and uh, they got me a bottle of beer, which I, I had had sips of beer in Wisconsin. Everybody in Wisconsin drinks beer. Everybody in Wisconsin, Minnesota drinks beer. Uh, but I didn't like beer. It was sour. I didn't like it there. I didn't drink it much. And uh, that was the end of my drinking experience. And the reason I mention that is because all of us talk about, boy, when I held that first drink, what a wonderful feeling. Not me. I hated it. And I didn't drink. We sailed around the Pacific. I didn't drink anything. They, a lot of guys on that ship drank, but not me. I, I was appalled by it. And I thought it was kind of sickening. In fact, we went up to, up to the Aleutians, you know, a lot of kids don't realize that in 1942 and 43, 43, the Japanese invaded the United States through the Aleutian Islands, took two Aleutian Islands, and uh, we had to go up there and get them out. And I was 17, finally. I enlisted in the Navy and uh, found it much. I went to Great Lakes, got in trouble there. Thank you. They used to have a, something called the grinder out there. And if you're a discipline problem, well, everybody else went up to have cokes at 5 o'clock. You got a loaded rifle. They'd play waltz music. You got their muzzle butt, muzzle butt, up, down. I did that a lot. But I finally got out of the Great Lakes. And I, uh, I enjoyed the Navy uh, to a degree. I, I didn't, I was, when, when uh, Carl was talking, he and I talked about it later. He got a lot of trouble in the Navy. If he'd gotten that trouble during the war, he'd have gone to prison. There was no rehabs, no nothing. You go to prison when you screw up, turning over that car and the Marine Corps guy, and you'd have been just getting out now. You could, <laughs> you'd have a good story by now. And then I said to the screw, <laughs> but uh, 
I went to Captain's Mass three times, which is a minor little, but I never drank. I just was a smart aleck. But the uh, end of the war was a naval hospital up in Northern California, outside of San Francisco, being sewed together a little bit. And uh, the Red Cross was taken by surprise by the atomic bomb. They had piles of tests to be given. And so now they had to get rid of them all. So we all took a test. And I've always been very good on tests because I read a lot. I remember the guy came in and said, Clancy, it's hard to believe this, but you're in the top 5% of intelligence of the entire United States Navy. And I said, I know. <laughs> but I got discharged there. I went briefly to the University of California and, got, and then left and went back to Wisconsin. And I, uh, I've just finished my sophomore year of high school. I've got to be a junior now in high school. And I didn't bring that up in California, but I wouldn't have to do it in Wisconsin. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I was going to go back with a bunch of high school kids. Uh, too worldly wise. And I went to talk to the guy at the VA. At that time, you could talk to him. There were no long lines. You just talked to somebody in the VA. And he said, I can help you, kid. And he got used my certificate for that test and got me in the University of Wisconsin as a freshman. Now, all the way, I went to university. And it went well. I, I did well. And I don't know if there's anybody in this room that remembers 1946 very well. But millions of guys got out of the service all at once and they all went to unit college many went to college because you got your due, you got your uh, tuition paid they paid for your books they sent you money every week a lot of guys just did that for something to do you know you could sit in freshman English class there'd be some grizzled old ex-marine sitting in the front row <laughs> neither side little honeys just out of high school at Black River Falls or someplace were you in the war yeah, you put out. <laughs> Very rude, but a lot of them did. And uh, but the thing was that the veterans used to cling together and go out and have parties and have fun together. They didn't want monkeys, high school kids. And as a veteran, I went with them. I wanted to be with them. And they, after, after a while, it became necessary for me to drink something to look as though I was drinking. And I drank little by little, and pretty soon I started to feel good, feel better. And halfway through the university, freshman year, I think, I did something I read about in the book. I crossed over an invisible line. All of a sudden, alcohol became desirable. I loved it. I loved the feeling it gave me. I loved doing, going out with the guys, having a lot of fun. And it helped me through the university. I, uh, I won some trophies for the university, and I was editor of the college newspaper, uh, chief justice of the student court, and I was really doing good. I spoke on behalf of the senior class at commencement. It really was wonderful. I, uh, but I walked across the stage. They all got a diploma. I got a blank diploma. I knew that I was going to get that because I had been gotten incomplete in the last semester from English history. They had a class at 8 o'clock in the morning, which I couldn't possibly get to. And so I got incomplete, and they held my... I've been hired to teach journalism at Duluth-Denfeld High School. And I, so I had to go to summer school and get this damn three hours of English history. So I got a job at the U.S. Rubber Company balancing white sidewall tires. I'm very good at that. And I go to three hours a week, and I'd stop after work every night. By this time, I loved to drink. And I just enjoyed it very much. And I was 
I told everybody in every bar that I was in what that damn university done to me. After all I'd done for them, they had me doing, being like a dog. And uh, after all, nobody wanted to hear it anymore. But one night there was a girl in there who seemed to be new, and she was with a traveling salesman, magazine salesman. So I told her the story. And she said, well, that doesn't seem possible that you're such a celebrity at the university. You're, you're kind of dirty. Your hands are dirty. You've got dirty clothes on. I said, I'm on my way home from work. I'll show you. We jumped in her car and drove to the campus, locked at 1 o'clock in the morning, of course. But I found a rock and broke the pane in the door. And we got in. We went up to the show the trophy case. She was overcome. She slumped to the floor, as I recall. I thought she had a flat tire, and I was trying to pump her up. When a policeman's flashlight illuminated this, you talk about a passion quencher. Jesus. What are you doing there? Nothing anymore. They took me downtown and booked me for breaking and entering in the nighttime. That's five years in the penitentiary in Wisconsin. And uh, thank God the school got in and got it reduced to drunk and disorderly. Before I had to go, the next morning I was in court though, and it was, oh, I was so sick. And I hated it, but it was embarrassing. And uh, the judge was a friend of our family, and I knew they were going to run in the paper. The small town papers run all that crap and love it. And uh, I sit there waiting for a guy to come into the box. He says, Who's Emerson? I said, I am. He said, Here. I looked at my box, and there was all my school books and all my notebooks and a note from the, on top from the, from the dean saying, I covered for you as long as I could, but I can't cover this one. You're expelled. And then I got a telegram from Duluth saying that I, my, tech, my contract had been abrogated on the grounds of moral turpitude. It was just turning out to be a bad morning. <laughs> then the judge came in with, with most embarrassing of all. I said, I'm so sorry, Judge. I, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> he said, Clancy, I regret that you're that sorry. And why did I judge? He says, in my experience, when people are that sorry, they're not only sorry for what they've done, but they're sorry for what they're going to do. I go, oh, no, Judge, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> but he was right, of course. The fun was just starting. But I wasn't going to teach now, so I had to get another job. I got a job as a sports writer on a newspaper. And I loved that because I do sports, and I write fairly well. And I met a girl with black eyes and black hair, and flashing, beautiful, mysterious manner. I thought, oh, and she won my heart. Then she dropped the big one. She said, I'm a Catholic. Thought, oh, shit. I can't take her home. What can I do with her? But she had my heart. We got married. My grandmother tried for two years. But we got married and uh, had a wonderful time. We'd start having children immediately. My wife began manifesting the behavior of Catholics that I know nothing about nor any other Protestant boy ever learned. But if there's any little Protestant boys here and you're going with a hot Catholic girl, and if she's a good girl, you are going to have a much bigger family than you ever dreamed. <laughs> I became a national distributor of small Catholics. And I said, can't we use birth control? No. I don't know what I'd have done if she had said yes, because it's impossible today to remember how naive people seemed in 1950. I'd been overseas in a war. I'd been through a major university. I heard the word condom once in my life. 
in a Navy training film where they showed this beautiful girl with big hooters and said, if you go to bed with her and don't have a condom, you'll die or some goddamn thing. <laughs> At that stage of my life, I'll try, I'll try. You know. Yeah, what you'd find in 1950, bad kids would have condoms, and they wouldn't buy them. You'd have to hire someone depraved to go and buy them. And even they would be ashamed. They would say, hey, give me some cigarettes. Because of rubbers. <laughs> now, the writer aid by my house, the kids, I guess they're here, kids, but they look grown up to me. They'd say, hey, give me some condoms. <laughs> and some cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. But I, uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed sports writing. It was my favorite job I ever had. But we began having children. It seemed to me at a rapid rate. And I had to get more money. And I wasn't going to get any more money from the newspaper, so I got a job with Fairbanks Morris, a big manufacturing firm in southern Wisconsin, in their advertising department. And I, they loved me. I did very well. I remember the, after a few months they called me in. And Clancy, you know, you're, you write very well. <laughs> Thank you. They said, but we really need you here Mondays, too. <laughs> and on Tuesday, when you come in, you smell bad. And I, uh, I'd had that same experience just about a year before that, when I was a senior at the university. I'd been arrested a couple times for disorderly conduct. Nothing serious, just high college kid stuff. But my friend said, why don't you go downtown? They got this new thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe that'll help you. I said, I'm not an alcoholic. We know that. But at least you won't get arrested. So I went to A and went to this room, eight fat guys sitting around the table. What the hell are you doing here? I thought, that's kind of odd. But I don't know why it was, because I was 22. I looked even younger. And there wasn't anybody in Wisconsin under 40 in AA at that time. Like some kid coming in tonight, eight years old, and saying, I think I'm an alcoholic. Oh, do you? I think you have a broken nose. <laughs> but, and I, I learned all I need to learn about it. If there's new people here tonight, you don't have to go to a lot of meetings. Alcoholics are people who drink too much. And uh, they come to A and admit it. That makes them feel better. Then they return to God. Then they show their gratitude by interminably helping one another for the rest of their natural life. I thought, God, what a dreary bunch this is. But I went for a few days. I thought, they're not going to help me. And so when the guy told me that at Fairbanks Morris, I had an answer. I said, you know, you're right, Mr. Collins. I got drinking heavily overseas when I saw that horror. I just wanted to play the veteran game. That's good. I said, downtown here in Beloit, they have an Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me go down there and learn how to stop drinking, and I'll be back in two weeks. And he said, oh, you will keep you on the payroll, kid. And I went down there, some more fat guys sitting around the table. And then I drank, and then I lost my family and lost my home. And then I thought things were going to hell. And I'm just on and on, interminable droning of losses. I thought, this is going to help me. I'm alive. So I knew I'd have to do something else. I went to a different, I went to over to uh, next city over, which is <laughs> Rockford. Got a job there. and. Advertising agency writing about Rockford machine tools, really exciting. And I worked there and did a good job till one day they called me in and said, You 
you're drinking too much. And I realized it was over then. So I gave him this same AA song and dance. And I had a couple of weeks to move around. I looked for a different job. And I did that for 10 years. Year after year after year, different. All my kids have been born in a different part of the country where it's going to be different. Sometimes I did very well for a while. I made a lot of money for a while. Other times I had terrible times. But it finally ended in Dallas, where I was working for a big firm called Tracy Locke, the largest advertising agency in the South. I was working on the Borden account, if any of you are old enough to remember L.C. Delmer the Cows. And uh, they called me in one day, the guy called me and said, you know, Clancy, you're a very good writer. And I thought, oh, this is the beginning of the end. He said, but last week you almost cost us the board, the uh, Hager Slacks account. And uh, I said, $10 million billing. He said, we can't have it. We have to discharge you now. He said, I'm going to ask you to clean out your office today and leave. And we have notified your wife yesterday that we're going to do this, so she'll be expecting you. And I thought, oh, Jesus, and I cleaned up my office, and I didn't go right home. They gave me a big severance check. I didn't go right home, because who wants to go home and take the heat all of a sudden? I really didn't, uh, I forgot what that was like, kind of. About four months ago, my dogs, I got five dogs, I'm boarding two of them, uh, start barking in the middle of the night, woof, woof, woof. And I said, shut up in there! I said it with love. And they, uh, I finally got them tottered out there, all baying out the front window. There's a guy, there's a little wall in front of my house. There was a guy sitting on it. And I thought, what the hell is this? They open there says, what the hell are you doing out there? Said, I'm going to a lecture. I said, a lecture? On what? Alcoholism. I said, where in the hell in Venice, California, is there a lecture on alcoholism at 2 o'clock in the morning? He's at my house. <laughs> and I know that. And I said, God bless you and shut the door. But I, uh, I drank up my severance check and then I went home. I had two or three days doing it. I had gone home once before in Rockford, oddly enough, where I used up my whole paycheck. And I had a clever remark from my wife. She said, Where's the money? I said, I bought something for the house, honey. She said, what? I said, three rounds. And she didn't, she didn't laugh at all. But this time I had no money and I had no clever remarks. And I got home and the house was empty. No, no furniture, no people. My clothes were all on the floor and the, on the porch. And there's a note on top saying, my children and I can't stand this anymore. We're leaving. They never told me where they went. And I knew I had to get out of Texas fast because I was at the moment through a series of bad breaks on severe probation from the state insane asylum. And my wife had signed me out under the guidance. If I had do anything bad, she'll call them and they'll come and get me. I knew she must have called them because she's such a vengeful thing. And so I knew I'd, I, a guy had asked me about a week before that. I said, do you know anybody can drive my car to Los Angeles? And I said, yeah. No, I don't know anybody. But that morning I did. I said, I know somebody. He said, who? I said, me. He said, I thought you were a big deal to Tracy Lott. Well, if they're phony, I quit. So he gave me a credit card and some money. And away I went. First day I got as far as El Paso, where uh, I used to work on the, uh, on, I was on the faculty of the university there. Because they didn't ask to see my 
degree. They just believed me when I told them I had it. And uh, I parked my car some safe place I knew about. And I went to Juarez, where I like to think I'm a living legend. And by midnight, the next night, I was standing in the bar, the old Chinese. Ah, yo soy el maestro de los locos de Chihuahua. <laughs> and my fans were all going, cabrón, cabrón, which I think means welcome in Spanish. But uh, next day I got up, I was so sick. Oh, God, I was sick, but I had to get going. Got as far as Phoenix, another three or four hundred miles. I didn't know anybody in Phoenix. I just had to hide my car well, and I really did, because I haven't found it yet. And uh, as the sun went down, I was going drunk through the streets trying to find my car. And some guy says, get out of the way, kid. And I said, help me find my car, will you? He said, don't bother me. I said, come on, for God's sake, help me find my car. I'm in deep trouble. He said, don't bother me. And I grabbed him by the lapels. For Christ's sake, what's wrong with you? He took out his badge and said, you're under arrest, boy. He threw... I told you if that were Johnny Harris said that, you'd cry. Anyway, he took me to jail, and I, it's, it's, he said, they're going to cool you off. In a jail where it's 130 degrees, you don't cool off right away. But I finally got to sleep. And I woke up about midnight. Oh, God, I'm so sick. And I had to vomit. <laughs> Turned out to be some guy's bed. He wasn't in it, so how were they going to know that? But then I, I did something I'm sure most of us have done. Once you vomit in the middle of the night, you ever notice how nice it is just to put your cheek on the cool tile on the floor? <laughs> and then you're right there if you have to vomit again anyway. And I went to sleep, and he came back and found me there. He said, you puked on my bed, you son of a bitch! Started kicking at me, kicked my front teeth out. And I... Uh, I didn't say anything, I didn't make trouble. But that was the end of that. In the morning, he let me out at 6 o'clock. My clothes were torn. I had vomit and blood all over me. Sick. Didn't know a soul in Phoenix. In deep trouble. Didn't have a car at the moment. All my stuff was in that car. But I'd learned one thing in AA. And if you want to be a long-time slipper, here's something you want to add to your bag of tricks. When you get to a point where you're dirty and filthy and smell bad and nobody wants anything to do with you, there's one place you're always welcome, an AA club. It's the only place in the world where the worse you look, the better they like it. <laughs> this one's mine, Fred. So I found the AA club and hustled somebody for $20, and I ran downtown to the bus depot. I don't know why I wanted to get to Los Angeles. I had no reason to go there, but I got a bus and got to Los Angeles, and I didn't know anybody there and had a terrible time. I, uh, I had one guy there that I knew. I'd give, he was a big star now, and I'd give him a start when he was a kid. I called him, I said, Ted, I've had, this client's have had a terrible car accident. I've lost everything. I'm waiting for a check to come in. Can you help me? He said, oh, absolutely. He told me how to get on the bus from downtown to Hollywood. I went to, and it was front office of this big agency, and got all the, oh, look at that. He, he almost cried when he saw me. Oh, Clancy, I'm so sorry. My God. He would turn his wallet and peace sauce and pretty good bill. I said, God bless you, Ted. I'll pay you back as soon as my check comes. And I went down and rented a room and cleaned up a little bit, got some of the vomit off me, and went to a few bars and had fun. 
couple of days later, I was out of money. I called him back and said, Ted, my check hasn't come. Could you help me, please, a little bit more? He said, Clancy, I called Dallas after you left my office. And they said, uh, you didn't have any car accident. You're a bum. You used to be a good guy, but you're a bum now. Nobody wants a thing to do with you. You're a loser. I'd offer oh, Christ's sake, Ted, for old time's sake, please. He said, okay, you come to the station tonight, but you come to the alley behind us. Don't come in the front door and shock everybody. Come in there at 9 o'clock. Maybe I'll walk out of the fire escape. And if you're there, I'll see what I can do. God bless you, Ted. I was out there at 8.30, raining like hell. He came out at 9 and said, Clancy, you make me sick. He threw a $5 bill that tousled down to a mud puddle. And I crawled out and got that. That boy really fooled him. And the next night I was in sleeping in an all-night theater in Skid Row. I don't know if they have them here. They probably don't. But in big cities, they have Skid Rows. Theaters have, they're cheap. They just run all night long. They run 25 or 30 cents. And they're designed primarily for street bums to sleep in. And I got into one of those with my last few pennies. If they don't really last all night, the guy comes in at 5 o'clock and says, Okay, all you bums out! The guy brings in a hose and starts hosing down. And I staggered up to still raining. Uh, oh, God. The guy says, you want to sell a pint of blood? I said, Jesus, do I ever. And we walked eight blocks up 4th Street to a blood bank and stood in line. Could drop a blood over here. Sat down. The guy came in. Who's Emerson? I am. He says, you don't have enough iron in your blood to sell a pint of blood. Sorry. I said, oh, God, pal. I'm so sick. I think I'm going to die. He says, well, down here about four blocks, there's something called the Midnight Mission. They're designed to help bums like you. Go down there. Maybe I'll help I went down in the rain, went to this mission. I said, I'd like some breakfast, please. He said, God, we just got done serving. Come on back at lunch, I'll give you some food. I can't make it till lunch. Jesus, help me. He said, done serving. And I grabbed him by the lapel. Bad habit. And two guys stepped over in the each undead one hand and threw out the door. I said, and don't come back, you phony bastard. And I tried to explain to him, I'm not a phony bastard. Three years ago, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas. Ads that I wrote, the LC number ads, were running that very week in Life and Time and Severing Post and Collier's and New Yorker. I've had my picture in the New York Times for one of my achievements when I was up. But it's hard to explain these things in midair. <laughs> I started to say that old mission. If someone got up to me that morning and said, you know, Slim, you're dying. Said, Why don't you go back to AA? And I have to tell him, pal, you don't understand. I'm not an alcoholic. I've been going to AA for 10 years. I have some reasons that I know I'm not an alcoholic. And I wish, by this time, I wish I were. I wish I were that simple. I wish I could go and listen to somebody talk about how much they drank and that somehow make me feel better, but it doesn't. AA is full of, I can't return to God. I'm too far beyond that. I'm not interested in helping people who don't need help. The number one reason I knew I was an alcoholic is because I could stop drinking. Alcoholics can. I knew that. They all said so. But I can stop drinking. When the remorse gets bad enough and I get to jam enough, I found that I can stop. And uh, fine. Except in two or three days... Somebody sneaks in my bedroom and puts an invisible spring in my gut. And the next day they start to tighten it. 
And it does come out as they need a drink, like the way Carl was talking. It just comes out, it just gets crappy. And the days go by and get bad. And but I'm, I could hardly stand it. And at one time, I all thought I had it made. In the mid-1950s, I went through a spell where when I got to a certain stage of drinking, I find myself counseling police officers. Absolutely a dumb thing to do. And I'd wind up in jail overnight for disorderly, drunk and disorderly or something. And one morning I got out of jail and the guy, my neighbor was there. He said, I'm coming out to give you a ride home. I said, yeah, I shouldn't do that. I got that damn cop. I got his badge number. He really screwed me around. I'm going to get him. He said, I don't know about that, but while you were out drunk last night, we couldn't find you when your son died. I thought, oh, God. I had a bunch of little girls and one little boy. And here's the new apple of my eye, I'll tell you. And I almost went crazy about that. We went up to Wisconsin and buried him in the, the foot of his grandmother's grave, my wife's mother's grave. And I took my, put my hand in his casket. I said, John Emerson, this will never happen again. I, I'm so sorry, God. We went up to Texas. And I didn't go to AA because AA makes me want to drink. I quit drinking. And I'd come home from work, have my work at night, and have dinner with the kids and help them with the homework sometimes. And sometimes we'd go for rides. On every meal, we said a little prayer for baby John in heaven. And it uh, went very well for about three, four weeks. And then one night, somebody snuck into my bedroom and put an invisible spring in my gut. And the next day, it was kind of inconvenient, just comfortable. But I thought, I can get through this for baby John. But the next day, it got worse. And the next day I got worse. And I found myself just getting that. Mary, take your sisters and go to your room. For Christ's sake. I'm sorry. I don't mean to holler at you. Just. Mm -hmm. One morning I got up. I just had to get a. I was just crazy. I had to get a cup of coffee before I killed somebody. I felt. Out to the kitchen. No coffee. No coffee in the house. No coffee made. A note from my wife. I've taken the kids to mass. All right. Damn it. So I went out in my car and hooked up a hose in the exhaust pipe and turned the motor and went to sleep and died. I just didn't know. I was crazy. And the neighbor watching us, I guess, through his breakfast nook had heard the motor running. I didn't come out, so he wandered over there and found me dead in the car. They pulled me out and breathed out of my chest and rushed me to the hospital. They worked on me for about three days. Then they determined to check my emotions and determined I was seriously mentally ill and committed me to the state insane asylum for an indefinite period which is how, why I happened to get there. And I was there until the next year, because it's kind of hard to get out. Cause you don't really get any treatment. They just keep you in the back ward. But I finally got out when I convinced my wife to sign me out. I went, I convinced these people in Dallas I'd learned my lesson, and now I was given by all of them. And, uh, but I knew I wasn't an alcoholic. I wish I were. And, but the... He might come up and said, you know, partner, you're dying. You're down to the last 120-some pounds. You've lost your wife and children. Never see them again. Lost your career. Once upon a time, they called you a boy genius. You can't even get a job washing dishes. Look at you. You're a filthy mess. He said, your little mother up in Wisconsin is no longer allowed to talk to you on the telephone because your stepfather is so tired of watching you play on her emotions so she'll go down to the Union Bank and take out a few more dollars from her little bank account, send it to her little boy and hope this will help her. And you, uh, 
You have no ID, no clothing. It's all that car in Phoenix you'll never see again. He said, why don't you go to, back to A one more time and at least admit you're an alcoholic instead of this screwing around waiting for the heat to get off so you can get out of there. And I said, you don't understand. My case is different, I would have said. And I didn't know what, how hackneyed that was. And uh, nobody came up and talked to me, but I finally had to go to the whip. I said, to him, where's the A club here? Well, there's nothing downtown. There's one on Wilshire and Fairfax. Where the hell is that? Well, you go up this hill to Hill Street, cross over to Wilshire, go west to the to Fairfax. That doesn't sound bad, does it? Rain. I walked through it. It'll be seven and a half miles. I got to that damn club. I was so sick. It just, I almost didn't go in because there was a guy in the doorway saying, Welcome home, son. <laughs> I thought, oh, shit. But I went in, and much to my surprise, that was my sobriety date. Much to my surprise. In fact, when I think about it, you know, I told you my birthday was October 31st. That was Halloween. I could have gone to a party and won a prize for my costume. But I never drank again, and much to my surprise, I didn't have any intention to stop drinking. What I had the intention was to get the heat off me somehow. And the guy at the club said, you know, there are three rules. You're not supposed to be in here during the week. You have to be a member during the week. You're here on the weekend, so you can be here. But three rules. You can't ask anyone for money, which you've already done. None of your smart Alex sarcastic remarks, which you've already done. And you have to go to a meeting every night at the club. Oh, Jesus. But I just decided to hang on. I slept in an all-night, you know, abandoned 1949 Mercury in the parking lot. And... Uh, I had no intention of ever staying sober. That's one argument I have with AA. In some of the literature, they say, you must have an, in order to be in AA, you must be, have an honest desire or a desire to stop drinking. I had no desire to stop drinking. It's been my experience that many people come to AA without a desire to stop drinking. They get it after they get here. And you have, you have to go through the tr troops a little bit. But I, uh, the reason I stayed stopped drinking is because in those meetings I was going to, I saw a guy that I'd seen in the movies. I knew he was rich, must be rich. And so I thought he'd like to help somebody who was new, but he didn't want to help anybody new. By Friday, I knew I was going to die. I was eating and living on cake at the meetings. Jesus, I got sick of cake. And uh, I went to this guy, I said, Bob, I really admire your program. Would you be my sponsor? <laughs> He said, okay, I want you, to do, want you to do what I tell you. Oh, sure, Bob. <laughs> and I found out shortly there were a few of the movie stars at all. I'd seen him in three movies. He'd been, he'd been in three movies. I saw him in two of them. So I thought he was in a lot of movies. He just was a goof. What he was was a radio actor. If During the 1950s, if you were alive and you heard, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, that's who he was, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. But he is, by this time, he drank himself out of that job. And uh, he wasn't really a great actor, but he's a good actor because he acted well at meetings. That took a lot of acting for him because he was not a good guy. He was a right-wing fascist AA pig of the worst sort. <laughs> do this, do that. <laughs> why am I taking this crap from this idiot? I'm so much smarter than him. Because as you, my only meal ticket other than I could see. And what he would do sometimes, he was a man of strong opinions. He'd come down, 
He never gave me any money. He told me to get a job a couple of times. He'd come out of the club and pick me up at night. He'd go to where he was speaking, and he'd give me a new series of edicts on the way back. And, and one night we went up to the Brentwood meeting, which was a big meeting at that time, biggest meeting in town. And before the meeting, some kid got up. He had asked to say, make an announcement. He said, I was here about, uh, I don't know, two, three months ago, and I was having a lot of trouble. And somebody here told me, pointed out that I was drinking too much. And I never thought of that. But I went home, and I thought, that's probably true. And I stopped drinking. I haven't had a drink since. I'm getting along fine. I a job. My family are getting along. I just came by to say thank you. And after the meeting, you know, people clapped, and I saw my sponsor pounce on him and say, that's very nice, we appreciate you being here, but don't ever come back. And just really gave him hell. On the way home, I said, Bob, why are you grinding this kid? He's sober. He said, well, because he's, he's got an alcohol problem. I said, Bob, I don't want you to get mad, but <laughs> AA is designed to help people with alcohol problems. Said, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. People with alcohol problems don't need AA. What do they need, Bob? They need to quit drinking, clean up their act, when they're offered a drink, say, no, thank you. I said, that doesn't work. I've been trying that for 10 years all over the country. That doesn't work, Bob. He said, I guess you don't have an alcohol problem, kid. You must have what I have and everybody else in AA has. I said, what's that, Bob? He said, something called alcoholism. I said, oh, for Christ's sake, Bob, don't play word games with me. I look terrible, but I'm smarter than you'd ever believe. <laughs> Shut up, he said. He gave me about a three-hour harangue, most of which I was able to blot out before I went insane, thank God. <laughs> but in that period, he explained to me something that I never could understand, that Alcoholics Anonymous stands for, and I didn't know that. He said, there are people who drink too much, or they get in trouble drinking, and they, uh, they realized that, so they quit drinking or they cut down their drinking, and that's the end of it. In our group, there are people who are too much with trouble drinking, and we cut down or the end of it, cut down, maybe taper off. But the difference is this, they stop. We must always drink again. We must always drink again. We can never stop. I, why would that be, Bob? Christ, I've been going to meetings all over the country, and I been asked to sleep, asked to leave the 2218 club. That's in Minneapolis, they're a heartache. But anyway, I said, I, I hear these A's talking, and they said, how much they lost. And I lost my family, I lost my home. Why do they keep drinking if it's so damn wonderful? They said, kid, they're, they're not stopping drinking because it's bad for them. Just the opposite. The curse of alcoholism is that it does too much for you. He said, this, he had a Coke in his hand. If this were Johnny Walker, and I took a big drink, mm, 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 the result would be to almost instantly alter my perception of reality, make it more colorful, a little less mean, a little friendlier. And I have another drink and it relieves the pain inside of me. And I feel all of a sudden I have the beginnings. I'm getting cute. They don't know it, but I know it. And I'm clever and cute. And I drink until I drink too much. 
And I've always known that to be happened, that alcohol is the best. I tell people alcohol is the best friend I ever had. Friends come and go. Lovers come and go. Jobs come and go. Cities come and go. But when a few drinks is just making you what you want to be, instead of that semi-wimp, whiner, complainer, inadequate goof, all of a sudden you're slick and cool. That's great. My only problem is I don't remember to stop. I get in trouble. And so my whole adult life was spent trying to find ways to stop. Imagine my surprise sometime later when my sponsor had me read the book. I'd read it once before, but I didn't. Even, I just scanned it. In chapter three, they discussed that exactly. On the first page of chapter three is the best definition of alcoholism I've ever seen. I've read a lot of them. It talks about what people like us have in common. We have a lot of differences in appearance and size and shape and color and drinking history. But there's one thing we have in common is apparently alcoholics of our type. Somewhere along the line, we've had to voluntarily or involuntarily accept the obsession that someday, somehow, I will control and enjoy my drinking. It says the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many followed into the gates of insanity and death. And uh, I thought, God, I was the only one in the world that had that situation. And talked about how you keep drinking, and eventually you wind up with pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I remember reading that thing, boy, how drunk do you have to get to feel like that? But that isn't what that means at all, I don't think. It means that's how you feel when you get sober again. Pitiful and incomprehensible. And people want answers for why the, what you're doing, what you're doing. And I don't have any answers. Leave me alone. Screw off. Get off my back. And uh, they talk about the things that you do. We try. We try switching from scotch to brandy or drinking wine only or drinking beer only or reading spiritual literature or taking exercise. All these things. Taking a trip, not taking a trip. I read that. I remember... There's only one thing in there I haven't done. I've never not taken a trip. When, it gets, when the heat's on, I take a trip. <laughs> only cowards stay and face the consequences. But little by little, Bob was explaining things to me. I said, Bob, you know, the way you describe it, that's not the story of my life for the last 10 years. Now I was saying, I'm going to do it this time. And somehow or other, it doesn't. He says, there's a name for people like you, kid. I said, what could that I hate to ask him because he was so profane. I said, what could that be, Bob? He said, I believe you're an alcoholic. I said, how could I be an alcoholic? Sure, I drink too much, but my problem is not alcohol. My problem is when I don't drink, it gets so bad. I feel so inadequate, so afraid, lonely. i got to do something. He said, kid, alcoholics aren't people whose problem is alcohol. Alcoholics are people whose answer is alcohol. And if it's your answer, it'll be your problem till you die from it. And he told me that early in December of 1958, now sober about five weeks. I thought, what if that were true? What if that's accurate? It can't be. But I can test it. I'll try to do what the old fool says for a while and see if I even survive. And I did. And I thought about this about two months ago. I was talking to somebody about something. I remember the situation that I'd almost forgotten. Probably the greatest moment of my sobriety when I was about four or five months sober. 
And I almost forgot it because it's such a mundane thing. But there was a woman in the club who I just hated. I hated her. I would kill her. I'd lie awake at night and think how I could kill her and not get caught. She just was a beast. She treated me like a piece of crap. And uh, I went to the meeting one night and Bob said, I want you to make amends to her. I said, are you kidding? She owes me amends. I don't know, why should I make amends to her? Someone told me that you called her a bitch. Bob, she is a bitch. Well, be that as it may, you apologize. And right there, every fiber of my being said, to hell with AA. This is all nonsense. I've been kidding myself. Apologize a bag like that. Screw it. And my whole being was against it. The only thing honest was my feet. I'm sorry I called you a bitch. You bitch. But that seemed to make everything easier after that. After I did that one thing. I guess that's the moment I took a third step, I would imagine. That's the closest thing I ever took. And I, little by little, did the things. And as they recited the steps this weekend, I remember my life, the crises in my life, adjusting. How when I was, when I was about 10 months sober, well, six months sober, I guess, I got a job as a dishwasher at the Gady Delicatessen. And I got fired the first night because it wasn't my fault. It appeared to me the busboys were bringing in more dishes than the waitresses were taken out. And I think the busboys were trying to get me because I was an Anglo. So I just piled up the dishes, screw you, Juan. And the guy fired me. And I went back to over the club and I got it was about 11 o'clock and after they closed at 12 and just the manager was left and we'd gone home to the meeting. I said, Jesus Sullivan, I got fired as a dishwasher tonight. People I got sober with got jobs, they got girlfriends and cars. I'm living in an abandoned car for Christ's sake. I thought I was going to get out of there with some money and now I'm screwed. And uh, I said, I might as well be drunk. I was seeing how you talk me out of it. And he said, I think you're right, kid. You'd be doing us all a favor by getting drunk. I said, what? He says, there's about 170 people in this club who think you're a jerk. They'd love to see you get drunk. There's about six people who like you, and they have to protect you and defend you incessantly. Just think, if you got drunk, you might make those six people feel bad, but you make 170 people really feel happy. I said, no, I won't! And about a week before that, my sponsor had grinded me again about taking an inventory. I'm not going to take an inventory, but I did. I went, give me some papers, Sullivan. I went in the back room. I didn't use any columns. I just wrote down, oh, God, all the things. I just bubbled up like vomiting on a sheet of paper. <laughs> and I got done. I, I felt pretty good. And the next day, that manager must have called Bob because Bob said, I understand you took your inventory. <laughs> How'd you hear that, Bob? He says, never mind, I know. Sponsors know. He says, I'm coming down tonight, 6 o'clock, pick you up. We're going to take you at fifth step. I said, Bob, I've got some stuff in there I haven't even thought of for years. It's so close, so visceral. 
I don't, I'd like to wait a couple weeks before I do it. Shut up, he said. I'll be there at 6. And he came at 6, and we went to a box yard, which is 40 miles up the ocean. Gave me a flashlight, and I read this dreadful thing to him. And, oh, God, it read even worse than I remembered, because I'd, I'd forgot some of that stuff, little. I've forgotten you're up in the ox yard. I said, that, that's all, Bob. He said, are you done now? He leaned over and said, that's the best thing you've done since you got sober, kid. You're going to make it. Oh, you don't understand. But it turned out he was right. But taking my fourth step, and ever since then, it's been my experience when I work with people, and I try to been working with people for a long time. They get sober, and they see do they do well in the magic of AA and all that. But after a few months, sometimes five, sometimes six, sometimes seven, they hit a wall. They've done all they know what to do. There's nothing more to do. And that, it seems to me that's a perfect time to take an inventory when you when you feel so bad and you're hopeless. And a lot of people, now this is going to be a little questionable, I suppose, but i tell you what I, in my experience, I've had a lot of people take inventories, and uh, I've never been a great fan of those four columns in the book, because I didn't take mine that way. So I've got some series of questions for the people I sponsor. And they say, like, uh, one, and looking back over your life, what memories are still painful, are still guilty, are still dirty. Two, in what way today do you feel inadequate as a person? Three, who do you resent and why? Look at the book and find how to write that down. On days you know you're having a bad day, where do you turn? And things like that. I wrote seven questions. And I gave them, but I sponsored an inventory with those seven questions. And some of them seem to stay sober. And they seem to. I've given three or four people 50-year cakes, so I know something's working for some of them. But it seems to me that the one thing that's missing in the fourth step in the book, and as he says, this is one way to do it, and he later says, we realize we know only a little, so he's not against the concept, is that it, it focuses too much on resentment and not enough of the secret inadequacies and despairs that you feel that you have no way to get out. You can't blame anybody because they're just you. And that seems to be helpful. And uh, my sponsor had me write inventory. People that I owe an amend to. I enjoyed that discussion, that step, eighth and ninth step. And I, uh, but it's, it's, to those who are new, it's a mixed feeling because sometimes you really get good results from an amend and sometimes you don't. I drove all the way, I drove, spent, saved money for $500 to fly to Dallas to make an amend to a guy. And uh, I said, I want you to know about uh, the reason I, I was drinking so much, that's why I stole your company truck and wrecked it. I didn't mean to. It was, he's a, how, why did you do that? And I said, well, I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous now. He says, what are you doing with an Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, I'm an alcoholic. Why do you think I did it? He said, I thought, think you did it because you're an asshole, and you were an asshole then, and you're an asshole now. Uh, 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 I want to just jump over the desk and choke him, but I didn't know how to explain it to Bob. <laughs> On the other hand, sometimes work out. When I was about... Uh, 
as I got along, little by little, my life began to change. We've heard such wonderful descriptions this weekend of how your life changes, and especially your perception. That's really all that changes. But bad things turn out to be all right, good things. And uh, I discovered somewhere in those years the purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous. I bet you you don't find many people who know the purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous. You say, well, to get sober and stay sober. Nah. The purpose of AA, I believe, and the 12 steps and sponsorship and the actions is to very slowly do what alcohol did fast. To change my perception of reality, to make the world a finer place, a world I can live in, to have some degree of self-worth, self-confidence, do things. I thought, God, that's so obvious. Why didn't I see that all the years I screwed around? And uh, when I was about 15, when I was two years sober, I got a little job as a beginning writer in a medical corporation. And Bob stayed on my can on how to act there. And by when I was five years sober, I was director of advertising in that corporation. Had front teeth again. If there's anybody in here new that's lost their teeth, let me give you hope. Once you become spiritually perfect, they grow back. I was seven years sober. Another guy and I were brought into Hollywood. We created the number one hard rock station in the world, some boss radio. We brought the Beatles in from New York. God, we were slick. When I was 10 years sober. I was downtown doing public relations for an oil company. 15 years sober. I was a marketing director in Beverly Hills. When I was five years sober, the same wife and all those children heard the crinkle of green in my wallet all the way to Dallas, leaped out of their post office box, rushed to my side, attached themselves being like a group of starving chiggers. Nine months and ten seconds later, another Catholic hit the street. And uh, there's one little boy, though. I remember sitting in the hospital, St. John's Hospital, crying. She said, you have a little boy. Oh, God, thank you. I've got a little boy again. And uh, somebody gave me a book on the rhythm system, which is the Catholic version of birth control, apparently. And I memorized that baby. There were no more babies at our house. I remember having to tell my wife, I'm sorry, honey, I got a headache. <laughs> and all my girls, all my kids have grown up now, and uh, my wife and I, she's been a princess. Uh, all the kids graduated from college, all grown up. And I'll tell you what makes you feel old. My oldest daughter is a judge. That doesn't make me feel old. She's retiring. She's 65. I say, why are you retiring? You're only 28. <laughs> I'm 65, Dad. Oh. But they're all doing fine. It's really wonderful. Three of my daughters turned 25 this summer in AA, much to my surprise. And everybody's doing well. And the, the nice thing is when you, when things are going your way, you, you feel kind of good. And I always felt kind of good. And, uh, when I was 15 years sober, uh, in some hideous fit of do-gooderism, I found myself resigning my job in Beverly Hills where I was making the big dough. And for the last 40 years, I've run the Midnight Mission on Skid Row, the place that threw me out in 1958. And people say, don't. Start a love offering. <laughs> Keep us on the air, for Christ's sake. Anyway. Yeah. And uh, 
that's been a lifesaver for me. I go to work every morning and watch people die. But uh, when I was there about four years, I got a call one day from the University of Wisconsin saying the, uh, the chancellor, it used to be the dean, the guy they expelled me, he's now the chancellor. Uh, he says he knows that he and you are not close. But we have a problem and perhaps you could help us. We were supposed to have an alumni, alumni luncheon in Los Angeles next weekend, a week after this, and the man who's supposed to set it up turned out has been dead for three months and we didn't know it. There's no arrangements. Can you possibly help us? I said, I'll call you back. I called her back in about an hour. I said, how would you like the Coconut Grove where all the movie stars go every night? I'd like to spend your lunchtime there. She said, oh, that'd be wonderful. I didn't tell her. I didn't. I, I sponsored the manager. That's why we got it so quick. And uh, so he came out. I said, on one condition, I said, that I get invited, even though I'm not an alumnus. She said, I'll call you back. And she called me and said, okay, you can come. And so they came out. We had a nice lunch in the Coconut Grove, and the chancellor and I were talking. And he said, uh, what's this I hear about you devoting some part of your life to helping others? I said, well, I guess that could be described that. He said, that's impossible. You are the most self-centered, selfish person I've ever known. I've never known you to do anything that wasn't in it for you. There's something in it for you. Why are you doing this? I don't know. It just makes me feel better. He said, I'd like to see this wonderful place in all its pristine purity. Don't let them know we're coming. Let's just jump in the car and go over there. I said, okay. So we went over there Sunday afternoon. Everything's sparkling clean. Floors are waxed. Guys outside, hi, Mr. Clancy. Hi, Mr. Clancy. We went to my office. I got some awards I've gotten in the last few, last few years. He said, this is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen because you are a selfish, self-serving person who I've never known to do anything for anyone. And here you are devoting part of your life for this. Yeah, I guess that's right. Now, that's the end of that. Well, the next February, then I got a call from the university again. Hello, uh, the chancellor is retiring this June. I said, that's nice. He said, for, he has named you our distinguished alumnus of the year. Can you come back and talk at commencement? <laughs> you bet I can. Baby. <laughs> so I took all my kids as we went back there. I talked to commencement. My parents were both still alive. I was their only child. They both sat crying in various parts of the auditorium. Wonderful experience. And I went back to California. That's really great memory. But then I couldn't let well enough alone. Jesus. The next year I started writing little notes to the university. Isn't it bad to have an alumnus of the year who's not even an alumnus? Isn't that kind of a violation of your ethics? They said, well, you wanted to let her. You know why? Because the dean might And I wrote him another one next year. Little funny one. Cute little one the next year. And after seven years, after my commencement, I finally got in the mail, here's my diploma. Here's your diploma. Now stop writing us those notes. <laughs> so if you ever come in my office, you'll see something wonderful. Alumnus of the year, 1980, graduate, 1987. <laughs> now, that's a good, good uh, amend to make. And I, uh, 
I love the last three, I'm going to spend a lot of time. I don't want to talk over time. But that's why I never look at my watch. That's where you made your mistake. Don't look at your watch. Just know that you're all right. But I, uh, I had a little difficulty with the 11th step. I guess I must call it a type A personality. I am not comfortable meditating for 15 minutes. That makes me crazy. I can go to a meeting where they have meditation. I can last a minute or so. And I, then I have to move. I've discovered that I don't have to meditate for hours. I, I meditate sometimes sitting in the traffic. I have to remember God means good for me. And just remember that. And the, uh, the tenth step was a wonderful thing. One of the most wonderful things that ever happened to me. As you might guess, I've not been a very good husband. I've been an excellent father, but a very, not a very good husband. And Bob Darrell, a kid from Las Vegas, and I were talking a couple years ago up in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I spoke on amends, and he spoke on Tenth Step. And he had an impression of the Tenth Step that I'd never heard before. He said, that the Ninth Step, we say we make amends, but the Tenth Step, we ever stop thinking of going back to the people that you've said you're sorry to, but you've screwed up their whole life? I said, no, but I'm... I came home on the plane. I thought, boy, that fits my wife perfectly. She's, had to, she's gone through so much with me, and we're getting along well now, but I'm so sorry. And I got home, and she was in bed, and I wrote a cute little note, which I was acknowledged that I was a bad husband, and she'd been a wonderful, loyal wife, and I really appreciated it. But I couched it, so it was kind of funny. I got up the next morning thinking, well, maybe she's read it and brought me some coffee, but she was still sleeping. Just sit on the table. And I went to work, and about a half hour later, I got a call saying, hurry home, your wife just died. And I hurried home, and my wife had just died at the kitchen table. She was sitting there having a cup of coffee with my daughter, apparently, and holding this piece of paper saying, he finally admitted it. <laughs> she's, had to, she's gone through so much with me, and we're getting along well now, but I'm so sorry. And I got home, and she was in bed, and I wrote a cute little note which I was acknowledged that I was a bad husband and she'd been a wonderful, loyal wife and I really appreciated it. But I couched it, so it was kind of funny. I got up the next morning thinking, well, maybe she's read it and brought me some coffee, but she was still sleeping, just sitting on the table. And I went to work, and about a half hour later, I got a call saying, hurry home, your wife just died. And I hurried home, and my wife had just died at the kitchen table. She was sitting there having a cup of coffee with my daughter, apparently, and holding this piece of paper saying, he finally admitted it. Ha, <laughs> Took a sip of coffee, shut her eyes, and just never opened them again. I'll tell you, that note took about a million pounds off my heart that I'd left that note. I am so glad. And we had a good funeral, and we took mother up to Wisconsin, and she's buried now between her mother and her son. And I took all the kids up there, and we had a saying goodbye to her. But I thought, just think, if it weren't for Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have sloughed that off. I would have been guilty for the rest of my life. I, got, I had to make amends to my father, a man I hated, because as far as I was concerned, he deserted my mother and I. And we, uh, I went up for his wife's funeral, and we sat and talked at the kitchen table. I said, Dad, 
You ever stop and think, why did you desert mother and I and never take care of me? He said, why, how can you say that? I gave up everything for you. I sent you money in the service. I sent, after you got home and got married, I supported your wife. I brought, I brought the groceries to your house. You didn't even know it. And I loved your son, and you wouldn't let me see him because you said I was a bad grandpa. And he said, I've cried myself a lot of times to sleep over you. I thought to myself, God, I never knew that. It's an entirely different perception than I had of the relationship. And so we got to be kind of close. He came out and lived with us in California before he died. Then he had to hurry home, be like an old elephant going back to the funeral, or the burial grounds. He went back to Wisconsin and died. And I came home from the funeral and he, we buried him. And I remember kissed him on the forehead and said, I'm so glad that I had a dad when you died. Because if it weren't for AA, I could, go, I could make a case of it. How did you get along with your father? Well, he's all right. He's a bright guy. But he dumped my wife, my mother and I, put me on the street and made me feel bad. I had to run away. Screw that son of a bitch. He's dead now. I hope he's in hell. I hope they're jabbing him with knives. But as a result of AA, I think, how did my father... We didn't see things the same way, and we almost missed it. But we got together, and he's gone now. I think he's in Valhalla, which is the Norwegian heaven. And I hope he's saving a seat right next to him so I can go there and have a cup of coffee with him. What a difference that makes. Such small little things. You know, there's a, one thing I want to say to the new people also. In the program, on the last page, the inside of the last page, they have Dr. Bob's last talk, the last third of it. They don't have the first two-thirds. It's, I think, to me, are the, the history of AA. It says, let us remember to keep our program simple. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes, which may be of interest to the scientific mind. Our purpose here is love and service. And we all know what love is, and we all know what service is. He said, and secondly, let us guard that erring member, the tongue, and use it with kindness and understanding. And there isn't a person in this room or in this world that doesn't know exactly what he's talking about. We all do well when things are going our way. <laughs> Love is the answer, baby. <laughs> but let somebody hurt our feelings or thwart us. <laughs> and you give them the ultimate curse. I don't even think that son of a bitch is alcoholic. But that's what this is. I, I am, because when I got sober, it was a little more of a different approach. But Dr. Bob wrote a great treatise once. He said, the 12 steps are simple in construction and easy to understand. They are extremely workable by anyone who wants to stay sober. You don't have to know the inside and outside. Don't have to know the secret meanings. There are no secret meanings. Alcoholics Anonymous, much to my surprise, turned out to be what it said it was. And what I had to do was adjust my thinking down to accept it. I, uh, and I know it doesn't work for everybody. About a month ago, a big Hollywood celebrity came up to me. I was giving a talk. He came up first and says, Clancy, he said, you're, you're very lucky. I can't get my mind around it. You've got it, and I can't. And I, I should, I can't. I don't know what the hell's wrong. I said, you will. But not in quite in time. He committed suicide last week, a week or two ago. I, I wept for him because I know that feeling. I, I went to A for years, 
And I thought, I can't, I can't understand this crap. What's so good about here? And yet today, I have come to believe in a loving God. And the great thing about that, I don't know what, sometimes I don't know, I've thought over the years, what should I pray for? I've prayed for a number of things, but I read the 11th step, and that tells me, as now and for the last 10 years and for the rest of my life, I hope, the only prayer I say at night, I say, Dear God, thank you for getting me through this day safe and sane and sober. And please help me discover what your will is for me so I can do it. Because I'm convinced all the niceties, if I can find God's will for me, I don't need nothing else. I'm home free. But as a human being, I can't always reach it. Because no matter how hard you work the program, you never rise above human being. And human beings are flawed. And they make mistakes. And they're emotional. And they're up and down. But the great thing about AA is, you know, rather think, January or December 31st, everybody's excited that we've got my new series of things that would have changed next year. And uh, if January 1st comes, I'm doing a new life. And sometimes that, those things will hold on for five or six days before I break them. The great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous in my life is this. Every night is New Year's Eve. And every morning is New Year's Day. And some days I don't do very well that day. But then I say my prayers at night and I think, come on tomorrow. Fresh day, fresh January 1st. And uh, some days I just go to bed and think, boy, I, I know better than what I've done today. But that's a mark of what A is about. It isn't designed for perfect people. It's designed for people like me, and I believe you, and I believe Bill Wilson, a very flawed man, lost in his own emotions, wrote about a lot of things that had never happened to him. And yet they all work. They all work out to us. And probably, uh, I think about the years I hated God because he killed my son. And I've been trying to say this recently when I get done talking. I can't do it with very much earnestness because I don't know how to do it exactly. But I can say, I'm glad to be here tonight, safe and sane and sober. Thank you. And God bless you. Now, for those who care to join, whose father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For that is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever.